Good evening, everyone, and welcome to The Real Science Exchange, the podcast where leading scientists and industry professionals meet over a few drinks to discuss the latest ideas and trends in animal nutrition. Hi, I'm Scott Sorrell, one of your hosts here tonight at The Real Science Exchange. As all dairy producers are looking for ways to be more profitable, maximizing milk component production and improving feed efficiency is top of mind for everyone at the dairy. Back in October, Dr. Kevin Harvatine from Penn State University joined us on the Real Science Lecture Series webinar and shared some of the newest data and recommendations for balancing all the factors impacting milk component production. You can view his uh, full webinar at balchem.com slash real science. So, uh, Kevin, welcome back to the Real Science Exchange. Um, this is not your first time here at the pub, Kevin, so I'm going to assume that you know the drill. So, what's in your glass, and is there any story behind it? Yeah, so in my glass today is Angry Orchard, and I, I usually keep it in the fridge, but I thought it would be a, a great thing to join Clay in, in having an Angry Orchard today. Okay, so he did influence you. Okay, very well. Um Kevin, I see you brought a guest uh, to the pub tonight with you. Would you mind introducing uh, your guest, please? Yeah, so my guest is Eve Beauclair. So I had to, to twist Eve's arm a, a little bit to, to join us on this. I wanted to, to bring him in on this discussion. So uh, background, Eve was on my committee, in my PhD committee at Cornell University. So it's kind of fun to have him here that I can actually ask some questions and get him to do some answering. It's not not just me answering questions like, back in the PhD defense. Uh, but Eve, I learned my molecular biology techniques and molecular biology work I did was actually in Eve's lab, collaborative work between Dale Bauman and Eve. And then Eve was nice enough to let me stick around for almost a year after to do a postdoc there's collaborative with him back, back to Dale Bauman also. So the reason I, I wanted to bring Eve on, um, Eve reads more deeply than any other animal nutritionist that that I have interacted with and really knows the basic literature. Um, but he also knows the dairy cow and I'll, I'll let him give his his full background. But he he's worked with cows and really understands cow, but then also understands the the basic regulation. And what I hoping we get to talk about today is is, you know, as nutritionists, we focus so much on supplying the substrate, the the building blocks to do things. And that is important. But we we can't forget that there's all sorts of regulation going on and, and that's all kind of at play in the background, even if we're not, not thinking about it. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, thank you, Kevin. Very well. That's nice to see you in person. Almost. <laughs> you know, yeah. Welcome Eve. It's glad to have you here, by the way. No, welcome. Thank you for coming. Yeah. So, uh, in terms of background, uh, I guess I'm I'm uh, I'm from Quebec, Canada. So born in Quebec, um, was raised on a dairy farm. Uh, went to school at Laval University. Did a master in growth and applied dairy cattle nutrition. And after that, I went to work with Dale Bauman. Uh, in during the eight days of uh, the growth among BSD story, um, I did mostly whole animal physiology at that point, and I was looking at the growth model, looking at protein synthesis and skeletal muscle. And uh, at that point, I, I decided that there was a lot of future in understanding molecular mechanisms. And there was a lot of interest in trying to understand our growth hormone actually is acting to bring about this whole range of action, both at the mammary and on the muscle. And there was a growth factor that we call IGF-1 at the time. So it is downstream of growth hormone. And really the action, uh, the, the leading groups at that point, there were three or four. And uh, I went to work uh, as a postdoc at the National Institutes of Health in Washington, D.C., in one of the leader at the time uh, in this field. Uh, his name is uh, Matt Reckler. Um, so, it, you know, this is where I learned uh, the molecular biology, but very much focus also uh, on this idea or this mechanism whereby growth hormone is able to bring about all of these actions, both metabolic and also uh, in terms of proliferation of tissues like the mammary. And uh, so after that, I came back to Cornell. 
And uh, our, you know, I'll just finish with that. Our very first, I would say the first by the first eight to 10 years, very much focused on following up on the growth hormone IGF story, but using a genetically engineered mouse model, which allows you to really probe a causal mechanism in terms of action, because you can not at the time, now you can do it in other animals, including large animals, but you could knock out a gene and see what type of consequence happened. So initially my work here at Cornell was very much focused on that, uh, but I've used cows all along, I've used sheep, uh, and now we're focused on other regulatory hormones. So that, that tells you pretty much, I guess, my story up to this oh. point. Well, thank you for that. Really looking forward to the conversation tonight. I think you'll add a, a very unique element. Um, in keeping with our pub theme, uh, that, do you have a drink tonight, do you, Eves? Yeah, yeah. I have a, a, a nice uh, Pinot Noir. Uh, since my origin is, I can trace my origin to France. Although I spend, uh, I, I'm never, I've been there only a couple of times. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's a nice Pinot Noir. Let's put it oh. this way. Very well. Day, but well, it's Friday afternoon. It's always happy hour at the Real Science Exchange. You know, when Kevin was here, we uh, we used not to do that, but now that Kevin is not here anymore, <laughs> very well. All right. Uh, finally, I need to welcome back my uh, co-host for tonight's conversation, Dr. Clay Zimmerman. Uh, Clay, it's been a while since uh, we've joined each other uh, and uh, shared the microphone. Uh, so, you know, it's getting colder outside now. I'm just kind of wonder if you've kind of switched things up. You still enjoying the the angry orchard? Have you gone for something maybe a little warmer, like a hot mulled cider or something? Wow, kind of... it's a good question. So, I want to thank Kevin for taking up the angry orchard mantle today because he might be the first other than you, right? I know. So, I'm I'm passing on the alcohol right now. I have this lovely wristband I've been wearing for a while. I don't know if you noticed that last week, Kevin, when I saw you. I've been dealing with a detached retina for two months. And I I will have surgery next week. So I'm, I'm passing on the alcohol, prepping for that. So yeah. great idea. He's also grounded, not able to fly anywhere for a little while. So no flying for a while. Kind of missing him in the field. So yeah. So Scott, what are you drinking tonight? So, so in my glass tonight is is a generous pour of four roses. Right, it's been a tough week, so I, <laughs> I got a got a tall one there. But uh, and the doing that is I'm leaving for Germany um, Sunday for something called the Euro Tier, which is a very large trade show in uh, Europe. And so I'm looking forward to meeting some of um, our our uh, listeners over there during that time. But the last time we had a Euro tier in person, and I don't remember what year it was, might have been um, 2018, if certainly pre-COVID. And I was over there traveling with my my boss, uh, Jonathan Griffin. And we had a practice that week of uh, stopping by the pub every evening and having some four roses and solving all the problems of the world. So uh, in, in honor of, uh, of Jonathan and, and uh, the Euro tier, I, I'm having a four roses and we'll also see if he listens to this, we'll see if he, uh, he <laughs> here's a toast to him. So anyway, uh, looking forward to tonight's uh, conversation. So cheers, gentlemen. Tonight's pubcast stories are brought to you by Reassure Precision Release Choline. Reassure is the most researched encapsulated choline on the market today, consistently delivering results to your transition cows of higher peak milk reduced metabolic disorders, and even in utero benefits to her calf leading to growth and health improvements. Visit Balchem.com to learn more. All right. Um, so, Kevin, to get started, uh, one of the things that you said during the webinar that really kind of struck me, uh, and I'd like to kind of have you elaborate on that, you said nutrition and management is best practice as an experiment in progress. So what exactly did you mean by that? Yeah, that's that's a bit of a term picked up from from Mike Allen. So, uh, you know, Mike Mike's a, a true believer that the cows are never wrong, um, but but the computer program and unbelievable the unbelievably the nutritionist is sometimes also also wrong, right? Um, so, you know, we I think in in our research we can really understand what's possible in in the directions that things can move in but then when you're out working on the herd um 
we really need to kind of try things and, and work out what's the best set of options in that scenario. And part of this comes down to, I think in nutrition, we have a lot of interactions. So what happens in one scenario might not be exactly the same in, in the other. Okay. You know, during your uh, webinar, we talked about the importance of increasing or maximizing milk protein and milk fat. And that seems intuitively obvious, right? That's, that's what we're in the business of selling. So maybe to put it in economic terms, what is a 0.1 unit of, of fat or protein? What's that worth to a dairy farmer today? Yeah, so so right now milk fat's what about three fifty a pound. So I, I think it's probably yeah. just under thirty cents for for tenth of a unit. It's gonna depend how much milk the, the herd's making, right? So obviously a higher producing herd, you as you're increasing component percents, you're getting getting more pounds out of that. All right, very well. You know, one of the things that intrigued me as you were kind of explaining uh, how how the, the the synthesis works is that there's three assembly lines or pathways. Uh, would you mind talking to us a little bit about that? Yeah, and and Eve will have to correct me on this. I, I I always heard that from Dale. I I don't know where that that original analogy comes from, but but he used to always like to, to he he used to always talk about that we can have think of it as three assembly lines. So we have lactose, fat, and protein. And, and really within milk fat, we could separate out and say we have an assembly line for our de novo synthesized fatty acids and then our, our preformed fatty acids. And um, you know, I, I was just working with one of my students this week on, on some analysis we we're doing. And it's interesting in milk fat, like with milk fat depression, you can't go below 50% decrease, that there's a, there's a floor. Um, that a cow never makes less than you know two and a half percent milk fat or two somewhere in there, right? We we never see a cow making 0.5 percent milk fat, and in what we always kind of explain that as is that as we turn on those systems, something turns them all on, which is probably the basic endocrine regulation. And then we can turn those pathways up or down a little bit based on nutrition or other factors, but but we're kind of uh, we have that shared regulation between them. So, Kevin, I I don't know if you know this or not. My, my graduate research was done with milk fat depression. Yeah. Quite quite a while ago. This would have been thirty five years ago. And we fed extremely low fiber diets to our cows to induce milk fat depression. And it was amazing how, you know, you could really drop the milk fat percentage in yeah. some cows, um, you know, down into the twos and other cows, they would drop, wouldn't drop hardly at all in milk fat tests. Yeah. Um, so, and what do you think the reasons are for that? Yeah, well, so so on that part of it is is the rumen side for milk fat depression. That some of those cows, just the way their rumen works, they're able to handle that 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 challenge, right? And they're just not producing the trans fatty acids. So that that's part of it is that dynamic in the rumen. Um, and then the other side is is the metabolic side. So I know I, we used to joke that CLA was was great for grad students because every cow responded to CLA, right? Uh, so we we never found a cow that didn't respond to CLA. So I I think probably more of that variation is is on the side of uh, the rumen than than on the side of of metabolism. But yeah. just just kind of to, to back up and. Uh, on that that shared regulation to so um Eve, Eve will have to jump in he, he teaches lactation also at at cornell um so from the endocrine side we you know there's a minimum set of hormones that we can actually stimulate lactation with um and like for example prolactin would be be part of that um and it's my understanding of of Bauman's work with prolactin. I don't know if there's much other work there's done there, but it's basically needed to turn things on, but then it wasn't doing very much on the amount of, of synthesis. Is that? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's absolutely essential for the, for the last phase of, of, 
of uh, epithelial cell differentiation. I mean, the cells responsible for milk synthesis. So you need to have prolactin. That happens over the last two or three or four weeks of, of pregnancy. But once you have that, you can remove prolactin and you'll maintain, uh, you know, the lactation and, you know, the curve will keep increasing because growth hormone is the true galactopoietic hormone in ruminants. It's not true in, in rodents, it's not true in humans, but in, in ruminants, that's the hormone. Um, yeah, what's, you know, what's, uh, I, and the other thing is that uh, in, in the, when Dale was working on growth hormone, they actually got also uh, recombinant prolactin. At the time, the company called Monsanto was really in the business of trying to come up with other stimulator of milk protein, uh, milk, uh, milk yield. And, uh, you know, Karen Plow, who is, well, we all know, Kevin knows and I know, but Karen Plow was a peer. Uh, she actually treated with prolactin both in, I think, uh, at 14 days of lactation and around day 60 of lactation. She did twice and she never saw any any increase. Now, yeah. prolactin, I think lately, for you know, uh, it's been shown to uh, actually, uh, if you antagonize, if you use an inhibitor of prolactin, uh once lactation is towards the end of lactation you can actually reduce yield and there is this thinking i think that it may i mean maybe the role of prolactin during lactation more subtle but would be to maintain the population yeah. so it's not going to give you anything more but maybe it, it does drop a little bit the rate of involution yeah. So if we go back to our factory analogy, basically we, we have to build the factory at the start of lactation, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so we have to turn. And then if we think of those assembly lines, assembly lines made up of a series of machines. So when we think about making that assembly line for milk fat, it's not just one enzyme. It's a series of enzymes we have to turn on. And then it, when we're turning on, like turning on synthesis of those enzymes, that's to go to the molecular biology level, it's the promoter region of the gene. So you have the, the gene encodes how to build the machine, but we have to turn it on with regulation in the promoter region. So, so we could think of it as like prolactin would be something that likely turns on all these genes at once to build to build that factory. And that's probably why we, we have such so part of that correlation between these components is that you have something like prolactin Turn, turning them all on, yeah. uh, it, but it, it it's it, it's clear that it's important for starting the. Yeah. the I mean, it's not only the genes; it's actually the structures. So, Kevin, I mean, you know, as you know, the the mill. The, I know you've referred to this like the mammary gland is a biosynthetic organ for lipids, but it's also uh, you know a major bioreactor for making proteins and lactose. Yeah. But what you do over this last phase of differentiation is actually create an extensive uh, endo, uh, endoplasmic reticulum, which is the, the, the organ, the rough endoplasmic reticulum, which is, sorry, it's, it's a structure within the cell, but this is the organelle where, you know, casein synthesis is going to, to, to happen. I mean, you know, you have to, for the secretion of casein, you, you need to have this structure. So you need to build all of this, these type of organelles. You need the Golgi also more extensively for lactosynthesis. And uh, so you need to build all of that. And prolactin plays a very critical role in doing that. And, and actually lipid synthesis is on the smooth, the smooth endoplasmic reticulum, which also another, you know, it's, it's the endoplasmic reticulum. That's the same structure. So these three things actually depend on this structure for these three different pathways, you have to do, to add this cellular structure to start with, otherwise you wouldn't be able to do any of the three. Yeah. Yeah. So it, uh, Eve, it is, is prolactin involved in, in increased memory, you know, cell numbers, or is it, or is it more involved in turn, you know, in colostrogenesis? Well, I don't want to get in trouble here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, you can see 
you know, the mouse is, is you know, we don't want to talk too much about the mouse, but the mouse uh, gives you um, a way to, uh, to have very stark differences. So, uh, you know, the main role of prolactin appears to be this panel differentiation, uh, not so much maybe proliferation. But I'm not going to say that it plays no role in proliferation in dairy cows. Uh, I don't, I don't have our data there. Uh, it's needed for sure. Um, yeah, I in I I'll show my my bias on this, but you know there there's a lot of work a while ago that kind of showed some really important hormones like prolactin for differentiation and um, growth hormone for for level of milk synthesis, but. My my guess is that there's a bunch of other factors in play that we just haven't characterized yeah. very well. Because I mean, we we I think we sort of think that we had we we knew the major hormones a long time ago, but we keep kind of discovering yeah. important roles for secreted proteins, right? I think one one you know one of my um, um, goal that I probably will not achieve, you know, but, you know, when you study metabolism and if you look at metabolism over the last 15, 20 years, one thing that come across is that every single tissue in your body is able to secrete signal, signaling molecules that are going to talk to other tissues to do something. Now, you know, Memory, uh, you know, early lactation in, in dairy cows selected for such a high yield very quickly, where, you know, the entire metabolism of the animal is taken over by this gland. I mean, we have, you know, every single tissue in the body is directed to feed this mammary gland. You know, that's really what happens. So, uh, bone in other, in other model system, bone uh you know liver adipose tissue all these tissues secrete specific set of signals to tell other tissues what to do when they all of a sudden become dominant okay and here we have the mammary gland and i'm not aware of any detection or any research that has been able to identify a signal produced by this tissue at the onset let's say onset of lactation that would make sense that the mammary gland would be able to talk to other tissues to tell the mammary gland a uh, to tell the other tissues you got to turn you know to change your behavior and think about me uh pthrp might be the only one that has been discussed a bit in the context of calcium but uh in the mouse it seems to be a bit like that in the dairy cow it doesn't sound to me like it's yeah. that dominant for calcium metabolism so anyway right I, I don't want to take us too too far off off course too early in our conversation here but but i think the fgf21 story would be kind of a neat example of that if if you'd want to give the highlights of that story yeah. organ yeah, it's 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 something we've been working on now for a while. Um, I mean, it's a it's a very interesting hormone. Uh, unfortunately, unlike BST, no companies is truly interested. Uh, well, because it doesn't do something absolutely spectacular in terms of output. Uh, so there is no tools really to study. Uh, recombinant hormone available in, in amounts that you would need. I mean, we're, we've been able to do a, some work because we were able to get some. But it's, it's a very interesting hormone because it's a signal that uh, regulates insulin sensi sensitivity in the system. Hmm. So, so it's, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a hormone that comes from liver and reset the system towards uh, having a more insulin responsive system, uh, at least when you give it exogenously. Now, you know, there's, I don't want to get too complicated. I mean, Kevin is asking probably because he wants to know what we're doing, but I don't know if you know where we're going, but uh, you know, there is the physiology. Kevin will appreciate that because he also worked with knockout mouse. 
there is what we call the physiology and, and then the pharmacology. So the physiology of the hormone, is it truly to alter insulin sensitivity? Not so sure. The pharmacology says you can do that with that hormone. You can reset completely insulin action in the animal. I mean, you give it to an obese animal, obese sheep, we've done sheep work, and the insulin just dropped like boom. Uh, so you need far less insulin to be able to regulate glucose. Uh, so it's a reset completely of the entire system in terms of insulin response. We did try in the dairy cow, we, had, we, we were interested uh, because the, the early lactating dairy cows, at least if you listen to a lot of people, it's presumably insulin resistant. You can debate that one as well. Uh, so we weren't because it's because of, of this so-called insulin resistant. Like actually, it should it'd be better to talk about a lack of insulin action. That's what it is because plasma insulin because of goes down because energy balance is negative, and perhaps the tissue also are slightly less responsive to insulin. So and then you have a massive input of free fatty acids to try to compensate for the negative energy balance and historically people have thought that that's a you know a factor that leads to some diseases so uh, we thought maybe fgf 21 early lactation could address that issue but uh, it, it doesn't work in the dairy cow in that manner in early lactation so that's why i say i told kevin before anything i do is not applicable but, but we're learning interesting biology, and I think uh, you never know when it's going to count. Yeah, yeah. right. We, we, we had a question. Sorry, Clay. I was just going to say uh, we, we had a question during the uh, webinar related to insulin, which might be helpful. It was come from uh, Saba Anwar, and he was asking a very basic question. How does insulin increase milk protein synthesis in the mammary gland? So maybe that might be a nice place to kind of recenter. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll start with that, and then let Eve jump in here. So, so our our understanding is that mammary gland doesn't have an insulin receptor, so that the the mammary epithelial cell that's making milk protein actually can't directly respond to that that insulin. So, um, so that makes us look for basically an indirect mechanism. So, what we think is likely happening is insulin is having an effect in the liver and you're ending up with an increase in IGF-1. And then the IGF-1 is going to the mammary gland and in telling the mammary gland to, to increase milk protein synthesis. Um, what's kind of interesting to, to bring into that is that the liver then becomes a little bit of the decider, right? That, that you have that intermediate link. And if we go back to the, the story, the mechanism of action of growth hormone, um, that was through IGF-1 also, right? So growth hormone there was stimulating um, liver to make IGF-1, but it only makes IGF-1 when energy balance and things are, are correct, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, so, you know, it, experimentally, it's a little bit hard to show. So uh, a lot of that basic work was done with hyperinsulinic clamp studies. Basically, you, you increase plasma insulin by quite a bit. So what, over two or three fold? And then you're infusing glucose to maintain normal blood glucose concentration. So you can, you can see the milk protein responses then, and um, you can see IGF-1 responses at the same time. I know Dale, I think, tried to do an experiment where they put IGF-1 up the teat canal, um, but that sort of was messy with with creating yeah. some mastitis issues, but I'll let I'll let Eve jump in on more of the the IGF one story there. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's it's. I mean, it's it's. I don't want. I mean, when I look at this, I you know IGF one does certain things. Uh, I, I you know you say no insulin receptor. I don't know to what extent that is an absolute truth or not. I mean, I think what's true is that somehow insulin, insulin doesn't regulate, I mean, as you, you know, you know, it doesn't, doesn't regulate certainly lipogenesis. Okay. But 
uh, I mean, you treat with insulin and you have a response in memory protein synthesis. Is it IGF-1? Is it insulin? I mean, it gets very complex because uh, like the IGF-1 receptor, I mean, the receptor for IGF-1 uh, and the insulin receptor, they share a lot of, they are, they're very pro promiscuous. Uh, and when I, you know, just to give you an idea, the IGF-1 receptor is made of two arms and the insulin receptor is made of two arms. And sometimes they exchange, like you can have one arm that is the IGF-1 receptor and one arm is the insulin receptor. And when you do that, you change the affinity of the, I mean, the, the signal that can bind this hybrid receptor actually could be insulin, it could be IGF-2, it could be IGF-1. So, so just to give you an idea, to me, all of these questions are not perhaps as simple and, and, and as, uh, you know, it's, it's a ne neglected area of work, I will say. I mean, memory protein synthesis, it's truly, I mean, you look at the, all the work that has been done to understand milk fat synthesis. I mean, there's an em enormous amount of work over the last 10, 15 years. I mean, Kevin has helped a lot uh, our understanding of, of, of how this is regulated, uh, Kevin and many of his colleagues now and, and Dale before that. But, you know, if you think about it, memory protein synthesis is far from having received the same yeah. level of attention. It, uh, I, and I think part of that problem, what, what really helped us on milk fat is we had CLA and diet-induced milk fat depression. So we can get a 50% decrease and we can do it every single time mm -hmm. um, in a really consistent manner, right? So we can get a big enough change that we can measure using molecular biology tools that really, I mean, they get better and better and more quantitative, but they're really originally built for yes, no answers, right? Mm -hmm. um, so if you think about a 10% change in milk protein or even a 5% change is, incredibly economically important but if you start looking for a five percent change in gene expression you have no chance of of ever seeing it no so so with milk fat we can give cla i can decrease 50 percent every single time every cow um so we're able to to really characterize the biology i think a limitation on the protein side is that it's a much smaller response and it's more inconsistent, probably because we haven't figured out the other interacting factors. So then it's just a lot harder to do the the the, the molecular biology and the physiology part. The the other thing, and I, it'll be interesting to get Eve's thought on this. So so uh, I sometimes I almost think that IGF one is kind of like the rumen pH of of the physiology world. So so we try to explain everything through rumen pH right? Mm -hmm. And it's because it's something that we can measure and we've measured it before and it has some logical biology to it, right? So I think we we had a lot of investigation of IGF-1 back in the growth hormone days mm -hmm. and, and it's reasonably characterized. So we, we can see a change there and we probably are over explaining stuff through that. But it, what's a little bit of a challenge is if you think about growth hormone stimulating IGF-1, you get an increase in all three assembly lines, right? You don't change milk composition, you get more lactose, more protein, more fat. But then here with this response, you're you're not getting more lactose or fat, you're getting more more protein, right? So so it's kind of the best ex the best explanation we have, but it's not not maybe that's not, that's not, I think there's something else, Kevin. Yeah. You, yeah. you know, if you if you treat with growth hormone and you try to explain the response because you increase IGF one and then you get all three or at least two out of the three, including I mean, there's this it doesn't match up with with the exclusive insulin action. Yeah. Which through IGF one. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It, the other thing just to throw out here. So, so, uh, you know, I, I often joke, um, cause we, we think a lot about percents, right. And we think a lot about our, our nutritional factors having these little small effects, but, but I often joke that it's hard to have a 50 pound cow make as much fat or protein as a hundred pound cow, right. That, that hundred pound cow is going to beat the 50 pound cow mm -hmm. every single day. 
So what's the difference between a 50 pound cow and a hundred pound cow? Well, it's, it, it, it's not, it's not a fat supplement. It's not, it, it's not our, our small nutritional changes, right? It's, it's physiology. It's probably, well, you know, a lot of it's probably stage lactation, which is driven by endocrinology. Um, it might be that that cow was sick and never got to recover, which just means that either she lost that function or her, her endocrine profile never came back to let her come back to that. Right. So that, and that, that's kind of where, where, um, why, why I'm Yvonne to kind of help us get, get some of that view that we can think about this nutritional impact, which is important, but we also have to, to understand that the endocrinology is driving a lot of that uh, the other the other the other thing that you know always i always wonder uh as Dale a couple of times you know when you look at the model that dale built based on growth hormone action yes igf1 is absolutely central okay but if you look at early lactation you have an animal that is growth hormone resistant in the liver. IGF-1 is to the floor. And yet this cow is able to do a lot. The mammary gland does, I mean, lactation rise. You can even reach a peak of lactation in that phase sometimes. And IGF-1 is very much depressed. So again, you see what I'm saying, Kevin? I, I'm not, I don't pretend I understand it. Most of us like to explain, you know, when people ask us a question like this, we say, oh yeah, growth hormone increase at Jeff one and da, 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 da. But I think this is, you know, there's a lot of things that are not understood. I mean, mammary gland biology, not only protein, uh, but in general, I think Kevin will agree with me. Unfortunately, in the, the, the animal science departments these days, I mean, there are a number of areas that are absolute, absolutely critical to dairy production and you find these areas to be neglected. I think mammary gland biology is, not, is one, I think. I don't know if Kevin agrees with yeah. me. But, you yeah, know. we don't have very much going on. But I have a question for Kevin. So since I, I don't follow this, I had the benefit of having Kevin right by me for a number of years so I could ask questions and he would answer right away. But OK, so first of all, on your work, uh, where you give acetate, I mean, exogenous acetate, and you can actually increase, you increase the proportion of the, of the, uh, the you know, the C16 and longer. I mean, the, those fatty acids, the de novo lipogenesis numeric, I mean, in the long chain, I mean, the longer ones, is it? Is that what happened? Yeah, uh, it's most most oh, the other way. sixteen carbon, but we also do decrease both the the less than sixteen and greater than sixteen. You increase everything. You you increase everything, but the biggest the well most experiments you increase everything, but always the biggest increase is is palmitic sixteen L. Yeah, but I thought you you your student was talking. Is it is it the de novo was increased or the completion of the de novo yes. up to sixteen? Yeah, the rate of completion. So you get all the small the, the medium chains, but in this case, when you treat with acetate, you end up with more of the fully you know uh, extended C sixteen palmitic acid, and I, I don't know. I, I'm trying to understand what happened there. Yeah, is it spot fourteen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah bring back something we haven't finished yeah in in part of this so so if we go go back to kind of this idea to to make milk components we need two parts i i like to say you you know we build stuff it's like building out of legos right you need you need the legos to actually put something together so so for for milk protein that's amino acids for milk fat most of those Legos are coming from acetate for that de novo synthesis pathway. Um, and, and you're building that basically, think of it as, as a two carbon Lego at a time, and you're building that up to 16 carbons. And at, it, we get these short chain fatty acids because at some point the fatty acid falls off and then it just, just can't be elongated. Mm -hmm. So um, 
for in the older biochemical literature would support this that when they when they're using cell extracts and adding acetate that just the presence of additional acetate i i'm i it basically i think what's happening is that it's speeding the process up so there's less of a chance for the fatty acid to fall off so then you go more towards that completion which is a 16 carbon fatty acid but the the other part of that is you know i i don't want to forget about the regulation side and um you know we've we've been trying to 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 go down this road but we we uh have had some challenges in the lab and don't don't exactly have all the answers yet but i i think there's a a good chance that that palmitic acid is actually changing regulation in the cell and in um that changes things so that we're going more towards towards that complete synthesis um yeah it's hard well I, I wish i had a better answer but but we we need more research right okay i'll ask you a second one <laughs> <laughs> so you know the you know our applied dairy cattle nutritionists there at cornell they're all excited because they they either they say they can balance the protein diet of the cow or give exogenous amino acids and then they increase uh, the, the percent fat in milk. And again, it's mostly the C16. So what's going on there? Yeah, and you know, I, so um, recently we've, I've been convinced that we need to be looking at the amino acid side of our diets when we're doing milk, milk fat experiments. So um, I, I always joke that in, in academia, we can, we can claim our expertise is one thing and we're ignoring every, everything else, right? Mm -hmm. So when, when generally when I was doing milk fat experiments, I would make sure that my diet wasn't generally protein deficient. So I, I mean, I'm usually overfeeding dietary protein just to make sure I'm not, not starving the rumen. But I, I hadn't been watching um, amino acid profiles and we've, we've been trying to do a better job of that. And um, in in do do a better job to make sure that we're not not deficient. Because if you think about, it, you know, we we all learned the amino acid barrel and stave um, analogy that if you have a limiting amino acid, you can't get a response to another amino acid. Well, it actually goes across nutrients, right? So so if one of these essentials was limiting, you you could be limiting response to to um just it, it in 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 another another way right um so we're, we're trying to get better at that but what's going on there uh you know I, I it could be within the mammary gland so um you know there are some links between um mTOR and MAP kinase pathways and SREBP which is one of our our favorite factors it's regulating lipogenic enzymes um th those become really complicated pathways and i i haven't ever worked in that area but there's certainly some links links in the literature um so so that's a possibility within the mammary gland i i wouldn't rule out some of this sort of whole body metabolic effects in in tissue crosstalk right so um you know, if that animal is amino acid deficient, it's not just the mammary gland that's deficient. It's also the liver, right? It's also other organs that are are playing key roles, not just in intermediary metabolism, but in in endocrine roles too, right? Um, so I, I I don't know if that's throwing out enough different options and not 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 planting a flag on any one of them, but. So Kevin, are there specific amino acids that you've been looking at as far as being limiting? Yeah, so so not being an expert, we're we're just trying to follow what what the experts are doing and just making sure that we have lysine and methionine with within within benchmarks. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I I I I know, you know, from from a practical application standpoint, you know, oftentimes when we supplement even rumor protected methionine. The analogs, I know you've done a lot of work with yeah, the analogs, yeah. a lot of really good work there. But but even, you know, even supplementing, you know, a rumor protected DL methionine, we will sometimes see a milk fat response in the herd. 
Yeah, we've seen it, and we've seen it with lysine too. We have seen really consistent responses to the analog on a rumen effect, right? So reducing um, risk for that alternate rumen biotragination. We did do one experiment where we had um, bypass methionine as as treatments and we did see some beneficial effects there in maintaining milk fat um we we didn't quite have the perfect setup because uh, believe it or not sometimes when we want to get milk fat depression we can't get milk fat depression right uh so so we during the what we call our challenge phases in that experiment we didn't get the decreases that we had we had hoped for so it it wasn't quite as clear clear of uh, uh, experimental treatment is what we had hoped for. But there's an indication there that um, that absorbed methionine was having a beneficial effect. Now, a, like if, if you think through on um, liver metabolism side, um, you know, we, we have this dogma that the, the liver is very bad at exporting fatty acids and it's not making any fatty acids. And I, I, I want to get Eve's, Eve's view on this. Um, you know, when I was with Eve, we we did some measurements of uh, gene expression of lipogenic enzymes in the liver. And there's a reasonable level of expression. Um, I think our dogma comes from our old explant data um, and probably also a a B difference. So I'm I'm not going to say that that the liver is a massive uh, site of of uh, fat synthesis, and not going to say it's good at exporting. Um, but if we think about the beneficial effects you see in methionine and liver function in transition cows, that there'd be some potential potential roles to support milk fat during during established lactation. Yeah, I mean, I think the old work is essentially measuring activities so what they would do is i mean this is this is before before the time when they could measure expression they would extract prepare you know extracts and assay for activity and i think um, i mean the liver fatty acid synthase activity is compared to let's say adipose tissue uh, or if you compare a ruminant to, let's say, a mouse or a rat liver, it's it's virtually nothing. Once once they're, you know, past the weaning, you know, uh, I mean, so I, I, I don't know. I mean, as you know, Kevin, um, with qPCR, you can measure uh, expression of about everything anywhere, but not quite, but but it, it can be misleading, I guess that's, you know, I, I still, I still lean on the side that there's not very much going on in liver in terms of, of de novo lipogenesis, uh, not saying there is none, but. Yeah, no, I, I, I would agree. I, I don't think it's a significant contributor. I, I do start wondering how much uh, repackaging mm -hmm. it is going on um, in, you know, I, I mean, our, we always talk about in transition cow, the cow's a hard time packaging and getting it out, but um, they, they, that might be quantitatively more of a contributor to sending back to, to the mammary gland. Guys, if you don't mind, might want to, you know, this has been fascinating, most of it over my head. So I'm going to bring it back to maybe something a little more practical. So what are some of the key things that you could share with uh, uh, nutritionists in terms of what can they do? What, what kind of interventions can they do to increase uh, milk fat on the dairy? Yeah, I, I like kind of thinking this is the, the short term versus long term view, right? And, and I guess one thing we, we haven't talked about on the long term side is, is genetics. Um, and and we've, we've done some characterization recently, just trying to get a feel for how, how different herds are. And in from the databases we can see from DRMS, there's hardly any variation in average milk fat potential between herds, right? Um, there's bigger variation between between cows, so that that's information we can use today. Um, but but long term, um, our selection indexes are doing this for us, right? That they're applying pressure to to increase milk milk fat percent. 
Um, so that would be one thing is making sure that that you're keeping up with that and making good decisions so that that your herd potential is where you want it to be down the road. And, and I know, especially when we go through through different economic times, it can be easy to think, well, I'm not not going to worry about that because it's not change, changing my cash flow today. But but long term, it could really, really be a problem. Um, for for the short term things, you know, I, I always talk about we we need to minimize milk fat depression. And uh, what I what I've been kind of trying to challenge people on recently is that, you know, we, when we averaged a three seven milk fat, if a herd was at a three four, everybody was really upset, and this needed to be fixed now, right? Uh, the genetic potential in, in the average of our, our cows is increasing. So right now our 12 month running average is probably 4.05, heading towards a 4.1% for Holsteins. So, so if we're at a 3.7, that should be like when we used to be at a 3.4, right? Um, so I, I really challenge people to make sure they're changing their, their goal. Uh, so I think there's times where we have um, decreased milk fat because we have some milk fat depression going on and we we need to 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 fix that um and then on on the side of increasing milk fat uh dietary fat in general has an effect you know palmitic acid has the biggest impact there but we're if when you look through experiments especially if you're on a low fat diet and fat is expensive right now I think we're going to be seeing a lot more diets that are really low in fat. So then just adding any fat can give a little bit of a boost. Um, certainly when you go above moderate fat levels, palmitic acid gives more. more. Um, and then Eve, Eve brought up on acetate. That's been really, con in our basic work, acetate's been really consistent to increase milk fat. Um, you, you, it's not, not feasible to buy acetate to feed, but it comes down to fiber digestibility and rumen, rumen function, which I know are really hard things uh, and kind of the holy grail of, of dairy nutrition is, is great fiber digestibility and great rumen function, but that, that's important there. Yeah, you mentioned that uh, genetics, our, our, our cattle has improved significantly uh, in, in recent years. How, what kind of a grade would you give us as a nutrition community and being able to keep up with their needs you well, you know, I, so I actually just had an, an email I was responding to earlier today about this, and and um, somebody was wondering like we've we've increased average milk fat so much, and why is that? Well, you look at the genetic data, and in a considerable part of its genetics, right? That that can be defined in their data. It's harder for us to say what part of its nutrition. Um, and, and I actually joked with the person. I said it. it, it maybe we should give the most credit to economics because mm -hmm. people are being paid yeah. for milk fat. And, and now all of a sudden they, they, they're, they are thinking it's important and they're not shooting themselves in the foot. You know, they're, they're doing the things they should have been doing to, to begin with. Uh, so I, we, we probably don't want to overlook the motivation factor in this, but certainly nutrition is, I think we're improving. Um, We've reduced a lot of risk factors. Uh, part of that through our knowledge, part of it just in our feed ingredients. So as oil became more valuable, they start stealing it from our distiller grains, right? So uh, we have lower fat distiller grains than we used to have. Um, I, I think we're doing a lot better job on the nutrition side. So I, you know, I, this probably part of part of the influence from from Dale, but it's it's hard to push production right um we but we we need to keep up to that genetic potential we can decrease by making mistakes so i i, I kind of have a hard time saying that as nutritionists we've pushed milk fat um but i think we're doing a lot better job of of inhibiting milk fat mm -hmm. you know kind of the same question for uh, uh amino acids what kind of guidance do you give uh uh, nutritionists in terms of meeting their amino acid requirements, protein requirements. Yeah, so I, I, I there I always claim I'm not not a protein person, right? Uh, but what I always say the number one goal in 
it should be maximizing microbial protein production, right? And um, you know, if you think about the way the way our research goes, um, we 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 tend to do research with new tools and in new technology out there. So a lot of our protein work's been focused on amino acid supplementation. It's a lot harder to do experiments on microbial protein yield. I mean, you need to do it in cows or doing omasal sampling. Um, and the techniques are, are messy, right? So we don't have a lot of data there, but our number one goal always needs to be to maximize microbial protein production. Um, you know, that that's the big benefit of the rumen. It's great amino acid quality. Um, so, so that would be number one. And then as far as amino acid balancing and guidelines, I, I point them towards the experts in, in the modeling and in that field to get to get their targets. But remember that that balancing is all dependent on that microbial protein pr prediction, um, which which is tough, tough one to have a good number on. Yeah. So. Uh, you given us the caveat that you're not an amino acid expert, but I have a question. It's amino acids. So maybe I ought to offer this up to Clay as well. But, you know, oftentimes when, you know, uh, producers, uh, nutritionists are, are using or prescribing amino acids in their diets. And yet when we see uh, milk protein prices decline, you know, around that $2 mark, we see people start to pull that out. Um, so how do you feel about that generally? What and it makes sense maybe from a protein perspective, but um, what else are we giving up when we when we pull those amino acids out? Well, I'll let Clay answer that part. But the one the one thing I always want to point out on this, because this, this gets a little bit frustrating to me that um, so so as milk soon as milk protein becomes one penny per pound higher than milk fat, everybody tells me I don't care about milk fat. Milk protein is more valuable. Um, and, and I always like to point out that we, we can have both, right? Um, and if you think, if you calculate out the economics of it, if you, if you say milk fat is valuable right now, I'm going to produce milk fat, you have to put the fixed cost of that cow, you have to pay first, right? So, so if you put that in and calculate your profitability for the fat, now you already have that cow with and you've already paid our fixed cost right so now to make that milk protein you just need to cover your variable costs for the protein and and i i never want to do the the calculations myself but but that that should be pretty easy to make a profit when you've already covered your your fixed cost right so i'll, I'll let clay answer the rest yeah well no that's it that's a good point. And I, I think what people sometimes uh, forget about is if you're if you're in a multiple component pricing system, which, you know, in the US, I think, you know, somewhere between 70 and 75% of the dairies are, you know, they're paid, they're paid for both pounds of milk fat and, and milk protein. And there are always these swings between the two. But it all, but that pendulum swings somewhere, you know, it, the, it swings somewhere between 30 and 70% of the milk check is um, on the low side, right? So either milk fat or milk protein will make up at least 30% of the milk check. And on the high side, one of those will make up 70%, but you're paid for both. So... I, th I think we lose sight of that sometimes. And and you talked about this some, you know, during during the real science lecture, short term versus long term. It rarely pays to give up on either one of those because, you know, ultimately the dairy is being paid for pounds of, of fat and protein. Gentlemen, this has been fun, but they just uh, flickered the lights, which means that is last call. So what I'd like to do uh, is ask each of you, and we're going to start with Clay, kind of give us uh, two or three takeaways uh, from uh, this afternoon's conversation. Our last call question is sponsored by AminoSure XM Precision Release Methionine, the next generation in amino acid balancing. With AminoSure XM, you can save up to five cents per cow per day on your methionine investment. Try it today and receive an additional 2.5 cents per cow per day savings with Balchem's limited time rebate offer. 
Contact your Belchem representative to learn more. Clay, would you mind starting us off? Yeah, so no, I I I really really enjoyed the uh, the the conversation this evening. So, you know, my takeaways um, are uh, certainly that you know there's a lot a lot of complexity to the biology of of producing milk components, and a lot we still don't know. But um, um, I, you know, I I think we we drove some points home home, you know, in the end about, you know, ways you can be, can feed for both milk fat and, and milk protein, you know, from a, from a practical basis. And, um, and Kevin, I liked your point, uh, you know, certainly from a protein perspective of focusing on microbial protein, it's a, it's a very high quality amino acid source. And, and and that's where everything starts, certainly from a milk protein perspective. So, Kevin, I want to thank you. I, I sat in one of your talks last week and you taught me a new word, parsimony. Yeah. I love that word. I, I actually had never used that term before, but um, you want to explain what parsimony is? <laughs> yeah, use it uh, in a sentence. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, I probably get a be bad at defining it, but basically it's the idea of, of um, the, the simplest model that explains the most things. So like the old saying that a, a model should be as simple as possible, but not, not simpler, right? Uh, so what happens with sometimes you, you have uh, one or two things that can explain most of what's going on, and then there would be a hundred other little things that would explain the last five percent of it. So the the, the issue comes in. You, you need to think about those big things and make sure you have those right because those next hundred might not be worth trying to to, to worry about. Eve, I want to thank you for joining us today. Uh, My pleasure. Enjoyed enjoyed the conversation, and so thank you for joining us. Uh, do you have a few comments you'd like to share with with the audience in summary? Well, um, from my perspective, it's 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 being exposed to the practical things, which I tend not to pay too much attention to. So, uh, looking uh, watching the you know the presentation that Kevin uh, prepared uh, as a preview to this uh, podcast. Uh, I guess uh, I'm amazed, and talking to Mike Van Emberg, one of my colleagues, which uh, lately about how much fat these cows are making on this optimized crude protein diet. So I guess never realized, I mean, I used to be a dairyman, essentially. I was for many, many years ago uh, before I went back to school. And and if we had a cow that was at 3.9% uh, fat, we were super excited, all things. And 3.5 was more the average. And now we're talking what, 4.1 to 4.7. I mean, it's it's plain amazing. So uh, yeah, there is genetics obviously, but I think uh, a lot of good uh, nutritional uh, inputs is going into um, the industry now. It's amazing, yeah. So. Uh, again, it's for me. It's it's the the practical side that uh, I like to listen to. It put me back in the real world. In my corner office, I don't think about these things too much. Yeah. It takes both the basic science and then the practical aspect of it. And Kevin, with that, why don't you why don't you close this out, sir? Yeah. So so I I still gonna bring back to uh, you know this idea that we need to think about that underlying regulation. And I think on the applied side, we we actually are trying to to optimize this. We just don't quite put the hormones or the physiology to it, right? So if we think about genetics and we're we're breeding this cow to make more milk and to make more milk fat, well, what are we doing? We're breeding for her to have different hormonal secretion, different hormonal responsiveness, right? We talk about transition cow transition period being so important in healthy cows. Well, what, what are we doing there by, by having that healthy cow coming through? Um, she, she is in a phys physiological spot where she can tell the mammary gland to make more milk, right? There's, there's no substitute for, for that. 
because uh, if she's a 50 pound cow versus a 100 pound cow, we we don't have a nutritional way to make make up for that, right? Uh, so then, you know, I I'm, I am a nutritionist, and that that's where my heart is to to balance that diet right and try to get those things right. But I think we have to appreciate that all these other parts are setting up that cow that we're then feeding. Um, it's really important to to keep that in mind, and and just that other idea that we 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 have we we have to give the substrate, but then we also need to make sure that we're not getting the way to physiology and kind of optimizing the physiology. That I like to use my my bodybuilder example that that if you if you want to become a bodybuilder, you just can't eat whey protein, right? You have to go to the gym lift weights and that tells your muscles to grow. So we we need to always keep that in mind as nutritionists. Yes, we're we're providing the substrate, but we also need to be making sure we have have the regulation in place. All right, very well. Gentlemen, I want to thank you for joining us tonight uh, for this enlightening conversation. I've, I've certainly enjoyed it and I hope you did as well. Uh, to our loyal listeners, uh, thanks once again for joining us here at the pub for a deeper dive into the topic around feeding cows for maximum milk components. Please reach out to us at anh.marketing at balchem.com with any ideas for future discussions, and we'll do our very best to bring those players together and to make that happen. So from all of us here, uh, we hope you learned something. We hope you had some fun, and we hope to see you next time here at the Real Science Exchange where it's always happy hour and you're always among friends. We'd love to hear your comments or ideas for topics and guests. So please reach out via email to anh.marketing at balchem.com with any suggestions, and we'll work hard to add them to the schedule. Don't forget to leave a five-star rating on your way out. You can request your Real Science Exchange t-shirt in just a few easy steps. Just like or subscribe to the Real Science Exchange and send us a screenshot along with your address and t-shirt size to anh.marketing at balchem.com. Balchem's Real Science Lecture Series of webinars continues with ruminant-focused topics on the first Tuesday of every month, monogastric-focused topics on the second Tuesday of each month, and quarterly topics for the companion animal segment. Visit balchem.com slash real science to see the latest schedule and to register for upcoming webinars.